Hi, welcome to Fighting to Win, the series where we share real stories from the front lines of the environmental justice movement. We're the Center for Health, Environment, and Justice, and we support activists around the country who are fighting against toxic chemical pollution in their communities. Most of them are everyday people who discovered toxics threatening their neighborhoods and decided to create the change that they need. Here at CHEJ, we connect communities to each other. So when COVID-19 hit, we launched a webinar series to bring organizers, activists, and community leaders together despite the distance. These conversations have been rich and inspiring, and now we want to share them with you as a reminder that we are together in this fight. And not just that, but we are fighting to win. Subscribe to Fighting to Win now, wherever you listen to podcasts. And thank you for being with us. I have to say, um, I have yet to visit the great state of Oklahoma. Um, and I'm so, so excited to have with us today, Rebecca Jim, who's been a longtime fighter and advocate uh, for justice out in Oklahoma, where she's dealing with some of the absolute worst, um, shall we say, quote unquote, representatives that anybody could have. Um, and she is tough as nails and has been doing this for a long time. And I can't thank you enough, uh, Rebecca, for joining us today. Well, it's a real pleasure. Um, although it is hard times, it really is for us and uh, the whole nation right now. Yeah. So uh, tell us a little bit about your yourself and your work um, in Oklahoma. How did you... Were you born there? Uh, did you move there from somewhere else? Give us your story. Oh, sure. Um, well, I'm a member of the Cherokee Nation, and I live on the Cherokee Reservation, as we now uh, have, are reclaiming it that way. Um, I did not grow up in Oklahoma. I grew up in West Texas and um, was a daughter of a pipeline um, worker. And so, that's ended up being one of one of the things that I will fight against um, and fight to stop more pipelines. But um, I am a member of the Cherokee Nation and I am a retired um, school counselor and I've spent most of my um, most of my working life as an Indian counselor working in uh, public schools. Um, and that really uh, got, that's where my uh, environmental work really began, was working with students who got turned on um, to it, the environmental issues that we had in Northeast Oklahoma. And so what were those issues specifically? Tell us about Northeastern Oklahoma. Uh, uh, this piece of um, Oklahoma is... Um, it's a very interesting slice. And if you looked on the map, it does look like little slices. And um, northeast, northeastern Ottawa County is uh, slivers of it was given to uh, remnant tribes uh, who were being forced, like the Cherokees uh, and other tribes that were forced to Indian Territory. Uh, they were huge nations that were um, uh, uh, forced to little slivers of land um, that 
uh, were, that's all the land they, they had left. Uh, and from wherever they came, whether that was California or uh, New York, uh, uh, Indiana, all these other states, uh, our tribal um, governments uh, were reestablished in this little sliver of Oklahoma. And so we have the, the Modocs, the Miamis, Ottawa's, Seneca, Cayuga, Wyandotte, Modoc, uh, and Quapaws, of course. And anyway, all of these tribes were wedged up there. And because of uh, a couple of things that happened with luck, and sometimes you get, uh, you get given land that nobody wants, but suddenly there becomes a, a treasure uh, hidden beneath. And so, um, which was the case for uh, one of the tribes here, the Quapaws, and actually the Miamis and the Peoris all got land that had some uh, riches below it. And that was um, lead and zinc. And that was discovered right after, um, about the time that Oklahoma became a state. And um, those, those uh, treasures were hauled out and, and uh, left uh, a segment of Oklahoma, really, um, of their tribal lands decimated. And, um, and that waste is still uh, poisoning the land and poisoning people. And that um, ended up being named after the creek that runs through it, which is Tar Creek. And it ended up being one of the largest Superfund sites in the nation. And as you know, CHEJ has fought for um, um, Superfund to be reauthorized. So do we. Uh, if, uh, if, that, um, if the tax was reinstated for Superfund, we, we might already be fixed. But with a broke Superfund, um, we, we, we are at uh, the will of Congress and, and our representative, our senator, um, is, is our link to any funds that come here. And that's Senator Inhofe, uh, who is up for election this year, which we hope everyone in Oklahoma goes to vote. <laughs> yes, we do. Uh, and, um, and help us out a little bit. Uh, but anyway, we... We have issues that um, that money could solve, and and in good science could solve, and we've not had enough of either. Yeah, Rebecca. So you you just said so much, and there's so much I want to ask you about. Um, but for starters, uh, so a few Indian tribes were quote unquote. I don't know. I, I, I don't, you can't even say, what do you say? <laughs> like, like forced to move to these slivers of land. Mm -hmm. Right. And they had no idea that there was, you know, lead or zinc in the ground that they would, that would be worth a lot of money someday. So as soon as, you know, this comes to light that there's a quote unquote treasure under the land, um, the process of extracting that treasure creates 
all this pollution and sickness and death? Do you feel like, is that a treasure? Is that a curse? A little <laughs> bit of both? What is it? Yeah, really. Uh, it, yes, it is both. And it was both. And it still is both. Um, it is a legacy that um, I, I really wouldn't have wished on anyone. And it had, um, had we understood, and if, if humanity could understand that we're really not up for um, under, uh, taking these metals out of the ground because we really don't know how to put the ground back together so it doesn't continue to pollute. Mm -hmm. We don't and know so, how to do that. And, and what happened? So I'm not a scientist. I'm sure there are some folks on the call today who are. And so I apologize for my ignorance. But if uh, there's zinc and lead in the ground and a company wants to dig it out to turn that into profit, um, explain what has to happen and why does that create a toxic situation for people who live near it? Well, for us, it's, it's, it's how, it's how um, ours was, is a legacy site. So there's no more work happening. So uh, let, me, let me start uh, where we are, and then we'll work backwards. Okay. So what we have left behind are 40, um, uh, 40 square miles of uh, mine waste, and that's about the size of Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, the uh, land that is... Um, it partially covered, sometimes uh, covered with uh, leftover debris from mining um, that is sometimes as high as five stories high. Uh, the debris from the mining happened because ore was so far below the ground. They had to go down to get it, and they had to go through hard rock to mm. get it. And then... Um, Pulling that up and pulling up the ore that was beneath, and in the um, in the early days of uh, the last century, in how they knew to extract, they left a lot behind in the debris that they might have been able to recover uh, in new systems, maybe. Uh, but anyway, they left a lot behind that was left in the, basically the rubble. Um, and it's, it's uh, the rubble is in different sizes. And so it's the size of little tumbler rocks or it's uh, all the way down to the finest sand uh, that you might be able to very gently feel between your fingers. Like, um, and so all of that gets, got piled up in piles, uh, mostly on the Quapaw Reservation at the time, because most of the ore was on tribal land. Uh, and um, it was left behind on top of the land because um, the, well, the mining companies may or may not have wanted to put it back in the ground. Some of them did want to put it back in the ground after they 
and clear the land back off, but it wasn't allowed to happen. Um, there's layers of things that happened here and who was in charge of the mining leases. And, and that was really the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And um, they convinced the uh, land owners, the, the tribal members, that they could use that uh, residue, that waste, on top of the ground as an income uh, for as long as it was there. It could be used as gravel. It could be used as rock. It could be used in building projects and asphalt projects. And um, it could be used forever as a resource to the tribal owner um, and rather than put it back in the ground. Um, and so that's what happened. So because that residue still had uh, lead and zinc and other heavy metals in it, uh, and it was used as uh, a resource, it was um, drug all over the county as uh, gravel. It was uh, put under uh, as gravel in playgrounds. It was put under um, uh, around houses as uh, 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 foundations. Uh, it was put uh, where you uh, put your cars for uh, driveways. It was put on the uh, dirt roads uh, uh, all over the county. And so uh, we ended up having uh, a lot of uh, uh, children discovered uh, to be lead poisoned um, in the middle 90s, uh, or early 90s, um, when one, one third of the Indian children um, uh, tested at the Indian clinic were lead poisoned. Um, and what symptoms were they showing, Rebecca? Well, they were brought by their parents to the Indian clinic because their teachers thought they were hyperactive and uh, might need medication for it. And so uh, they were being they were being sent there uh, to be medicated. And um, a, a nurse and a doctor had a conversation. And the nurse there at the Indian Clinic said, I've been understanding and reading about lead, and lead sometimes um, can manifest in children as hyperactive. It, it could do that. And so the doctor there uh, began sampling every child that came through, and that's when it was discovered uh, a couple of years later that when the records were looked through um, that that sure enough, they were lead poisoned uh, and continued to be for uh, generations. And so uh, we still have lead poisoned children. And so, but that action uh, brought EPA back to us and, uh, and they began doing a thing uh, of digging up playgrounds and schoolyards and high access areas where children play, right. but they also uh, found it in their residential yards. And so they uh, got funding to uh, dig up yards and these high access areas all over and are continuing to do that even now. Uh, so they've been doing that for since 1995, digging up dirt and um, so, they're not done because it's a voluntary cleanup 
and not everybody uh, wants EPA to come in and dig up their yard. That's unbelievable. Um, I, uh, I wanted to welcome everybody who is just joining us. Uh, we are talking with Rebecca Jim today, um, longtime activist, advocate, leader from Oklahoma. Um, if you have uh, questions, uh, we're gonna open it up in a few minutes, uh, but also we have some colleagues monitoring the chat and feel free to drop some comments or questions in the chat and we'll make sure to get to everybody. Um, also, if you're on the phone, don't feel left out. Um, we will have, uh, I'll open up some Q&A time uh, for you as well. Um, Rebecca, you mentioned that your father uh, worked uh, for the for a pipeline as a um, as a worker um, was that in Texas when you were growing up? Uh, yes, uh, but he he started out here in Oklahoma. Okay. And yesterday I listened in to um, a, a webinar put on by the Oklahoma Department of Environmental Quality on the Cushing site, and that was one of the sites he worked on uh, years ago, and and here it is. A hundred years later, maybe that that they're finally getting around to cleaning up that site. So extraction is a thing that um, we're we don't know how to do this. We don't know how to take things out of the earth, well, use them and and not pollute and leave a mm -hmm. pollution behind that can hurt. And so, what did he do um, as a worker for the pipeline? And what what were your, some of your recollections about that time? Yeah, he, he was an electrician for uh, Shell Pipeline and retired from them. Um, he retired uh, and came back to Oklahoma because uh, that's where he was from. And I'm living on uh, his land that he inherited. And he inherited it um, from his dad who re uh, acquired it because <laughs> we go back to extraction. And... Um, he, uh, my grandfather acquired it because this this land um, it wasn't what was beneath the land it was what was on top of it it was the grass and he was um, my dad's dad uh, was uh, a cattleman he uh, and several other things but uh, he came to Oklahoma uh, our Indian Territory my grandfather did uh, in and was a doctor actually, and got his first job with uh, the hanging judge in, in Arkansas. And um, didn't like that job, so his second job was, I think, very important. He, um, he got the contract with the Cherokee Nation to vaccinate um, the Cherokees against smallpox, and, uh, which was the pandemic that could have wiped us out. Uh, but he and another doctor took him two years to vaccinate the Cherokees. And in that two years, he got to look over all these Cherokee women. And he got to look over all that tall grass. And um, so he married a Cherokee, which allowed him to uh, have easy access to graze all the cattle he wanted. Uh, and because grass was what he was extracting. Uh, anyway, his, his son inherited that land and I'm living on it now. 
Wow. And, and um, so to go back to your dad, you said, so he was an electrician for a shell oil pipeline. Mm -hmm. um, why? Because you said that that was something that you were, um, that you would always be fighting. Why is that? Well, it, if here in Oklahoma, we're an oil state and oil uh, made us rich, just like uh, minerals did. But it has left such a damage. Uh, and now, um, the way pipelines are done and the way they extract uh, oil now, um, I know I had to have my house examined for, for earthquake damage um, because we, they've been fracking Oklahoma to pieces and many other states. Um, and the damage is not just um, in the air, not just to the to the water around us, but it's also uh, physical structures that are damaged. Yeah, um, that's that's the way things are done now, and uh, it wasn't the way it was done when my dad was involved with uh, pipelines, but it was still extraction, and um, yeah, we got work to do. Yeah, we we certainly do. Um, question in the chat from Lynn is which companies were involved in mining at Tar Creek? How has the BIA worked with those companies? Well, there were uh, eight mining companies that were left on the list as, uh, as the big actors, uh, the, which would have been the, what we call it, the principally responsible parties, the PRPs at the site. Um, and, but also, there were lots and lots of early uh, mining done where anybody could come in on 40 acres and open up their very own mine. Uh, and that's the BIA, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, um, let those leases on the tribal lands and, um, and they managed the leases. Um, those, uh, it's very interesting. Um, many of, uh, many of the, the tribal members became quite wealthy, and um, but they were not uh, deemed competent to deal with their own wealth. If they, uh, it was, um, it, it, the the more you look at our site, the the deeper the environmental justice is. Um, and so those, those quapas that had ore on their land uh, were deemed incompetent. Uh, it didn't matter if they could read or write. It didn't matter how educated they were. Uh, if they had ore on their land, they were deemed incompetent and were not allowed to deal with their royalties. If they wanted something, they had to ask for that money from the Bureau of Indian Affairs and, and get it. And as it turned out, um, many of the many many of these people got very rich. Um, one of the the richest, the richest woman in the world back in those days was a Quapaw woman. Um, so they had extreme wealth. Uh, but um, as it turned out, the Bureau of Indian Affairs lost their money. And um, that it, it evaporated. It, it, 
it wasn't there to be claimed anymore. Uh, it was it was lost. The other thing that happened was if you were a quapaw and you didn't have ore on your land, you could sell your allotted land, and um, and then non-Indians bought that land and they were able to mine it and um, and and gain a great deal of wealth that way. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if I answered that question, but they. Eight uh, mining companies that were uh, the big, the big companies that uh, were left as principally responsible uh, parties. Um, they took it took so long for EPA to get around to going. Hey, you're responsible. You should do something about this. That they could see that coming, and so they just took their time and kind of went bankrupt as as time went on. And finally, they, they weren't able to ask them for money because they weren't viable anymore. Um, EPA really blew their chance to get um, settlements from these bigger companies um, early on. They couldn't, and they, they blew it. Re Rebecca, I have to say, my blood is boiling right now. I, I don't know how everybody's feeling. Um, <laughs> And, and so uh, at the risk of having my head explode live on a Zoom call, uh, let me ask you this, like uh, money doesn't just evaporate or disappear. <laughs> so I'm not a scientist and I'm not an environmental scientist, but maybe, you know, maybe I missed that class where money just evaporates. Um, where did it go? Who took it? Well, uh, it was stolen. It was yeah. stolen. And um, it, there was a, a court case about this. It wasn't only the Quapaw's money that was lost through the BIA. It was other extractions uh, from other tribes, oil and, and, and gas leases, um, tribal members that had um, all kinds of money set aside in those funds was, was uh, stolen. I, I can't remember the billions of dollars that were stolen from uh, tribal members. But there was a court case uh, brought forward by uh, a woman named Cobell. And uh, that case was settled. And, um, and people that lost money really didn't get money back, um, like you would think. But money was set aside in the settlement for... Uh, some uh, education uh, money for, for uh, people on into the future. Mm. So there was some uh, justice. Um, the Quapaws went ahead and had their own uh, court cases. They, they, they didn't just settle with that, that case. And in fact, one of our board members, Grace Goodeagle, um, won a case uh, uh, last, just last year probably about this time uh, a case from the with the US government and so one time uh, you got to know that sometimes you win and um, so she and uh, seven other families of Quapaw families were uh, 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 compensated somewhat and they shared their what some of what they uh, were given back to the whole tribe um, themselves. And then the 
Kapa tribe, Kapa nation uh, suit also. And so there's, mm. there's some, I mean, it takes, it, it doesn't take long for them to take it, but it takes a while to get it back and to find some justice, but there can be. Uh, and it, you, have to, you have to believe that. Uh, I do. Uh, yeah, you yeah, believe in, and you have to work for it and fight for it like you, you know, you have been for a long time. Thank you for listening to Fighting to Win. To learn more about the Center for Health, Environment, and Justice in the communities we're working with, visit www.chej.org. Subscribe to Fighting to Win wherever you listen to podcasts and stay tuned for new episodes.